audio teaching is provided by segula.net. You are listening to Session 20, Revival, Part B, from the series, Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit. This session was recorded live at Beit Sur Fellowship. All right, so we are going to continue our conversation about revival. So last night we defined a revival as uh, a God-empowered, widespread move of repentance. And I think to that, maybe we could also add the sense of renewal. Uh, It's a situation in which people turn their lives to Yeshua and turn away from sin in unusually large numbers. Uh, But it also has an effect on those who are already believers, rekindling a passion for God and his word, bringing a strong sense of our inability apart from God's empowerment, energizing God's people to fulfill the Great Commission. God's people are given a fresh zeal, and efforts to bring the lost to Messiah are easier and far more successful than under normal circumstances. Uh, Wesley Duell insists that revival converts tend to be lasting converts. It's not just a fad. People's lives are permanently changed and entire communities are transformed. Those who have experienced real revival attest to how amazing of an experience it is. God's presence is palpable and awesome, and those whose faith is merely nominal are spurred toward a life of radical devotion to Yeshua, a life of holiness unto God, setting aside everything that gets in the way of that. It's like a little taste of the kingdom. Uh, The opposite of revival is deadness, sterility, and apathy. We lack passion or zeal. We're tired, lazy. Efforts at winning people to Messiah are so tiresome and produce so little tangible success that we wonder whether it's truly worth it. Feels like we're spinning our tires but getting nowhere. And the worst part about it is we're not even sure we really care anymore. So when you contrast the two, it makes you wonder, why not always have revival? Why do we even have periods of history without revival? So a bunch of questions related to all that. One is, is it possible to always have revival? Is Is that a possibility? Like if... We had our act together as believers or or whatever it may be. Would it be possible to have a perpetual state of revival going on? Uh, Another question is, what conditions are necessary for God to send revival? Um, Like we talked about last time, revival comes from God. It's not something we can conjure up, right? It's not something we make happen. It's something God does. But are there conditions involved? And if so, what are those conditions that are necessary in order for God to bring revival. A third question is, who is to blame for our lack of revival? If we don't have revival going on, whose whose fault is it? Right? Like, is it our fault as believers? Are we doing something wrong that there isn't revival? Or is that God's prerogative? And, you know, it's, it's his uh, fault, so to speak, that there's no revival happening. He makes it happen when he wants to, and so we can't blame ourselves for it. It's his responsibility. 
is, so in other words, would revival come for sure if we just prayed hard enough for it? Or is it entirely God's prerogative to send revival and there's nothing we can do to hasten or postpone it? Anyone remember this chart from session one? <laughs> uh, predestination versus free will. So what I tried to do with this chart is, is map out what are the consequences in different areas of our faith and theology and, and spiritual life of uh, seeing God as the one in control versus seeing man as the one in control. And I mean, of course, as all of us as believers believe God is in control in an ultimate sense. But when it comes to things like, uh, you know, whose responsibility is it to do such and such? Is the onus on God or is the onus on man? Right? Um, and so, of course, uh, theologically, this works out as the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. You have... Uh, um, Salvation, does that come about because God chooses to save you and and therefore you receive Yeshua? Or is it you choosing to accept Yeshua? Or a combination of both, right? You know, how does all this work out? Are events orchestrated by God or guided by God? You know, extremes are predetermined by God and there's nothing that can be changed, a fatalistic sort of look, uh, or things are left to chance, more or less. God winds up the machine and lets it go and kind of does its own thing and doesn't interfere t too much in the world that he created, uh, except when absolutely necessary. So... You know, in relation to the spiritual gifts, is it God's prerogative to manifest them or is it man's prerogative to manifest them? If we don't see the spiritual gifts happening in our community, is that our fault or is it God's fault? Right? What's our role? Uh, is it to, we just need to trust in God and wait on him or we need to step out and take initiative, right? So you can see how where you stand on this chart kind of affects the way you view revival. Is revivals, is it our responsibility to seek revival or pray for revival or, or do something to help bring revival? Or is it something that we wait on God and trust him to do at the right time? And he'll do it whether or not we do X, Y, and Z. Uh, I'm not going to say one side of this chart is more correct than the other side, but I do think the correct answer is closer to the middle than not. Uh, I, I do think there are conditions that we are supposed to meet. Going back to that second question, there, there are conditions that we're supposed to meet before God will send a revival. But I also strongly believe that ultimately it is God's prerogative, and ultimately there's nothing we can do to either twist God's arm or stay his hand. God can accomplish his purposes with or without us. He doesn't need us, right? I mean, that's it's one of the most humbling things to realize is that God really doesn't need you. He can raise up someone else to do his will if, if he has to, right? If you don't want to. So the, the Esther principle, right? In Esther 4.14, Mordecai says to Esther, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. 
So, you know, it's kind of, he's telling Esther, you know, God's going to save his people one way or another. You might be that tool that God wants to use. And if you refuse, God can find another person to use, another means of saving his people. It's like that for us. God can use us, but he doesn't have to. He can find someone else to use if, if we are not going to cooperate, right? So the fact that God can accomplish his purposes with or without us ought to make us yearn that he does it with us. <laughs> that ought to be our, our desire, is that God uses us, that work, he works through us and in us, uh, rather than us passing up that opportunity to be used by God in that kind of way. So, if it's true that there are conditions that are necessary for God to send revival, what are those conditions that we're supposed to meet? What, what, what does that look like? Uh, we'll come back to this in a moment, um, but I do think that one of the primary conditions is that we desire more of him in our lives. We need to hunger and yearn for his empowerment and to see him work in us and through us. And it's out of this hunger that we can pray, because prayer is the heartbeat of revival. Virtually every revival in history was preceded by months or years of prayer, repentance, and beseeching God to revive his kehilah. So, before we jump into more of that, why doesn't God just send revival all the time? Why, why does he choose to work in these seasons uh, it's where it seems, you know, sometimes sometimes it seems like God's like really at work and, and there's all this stuff happening and then other times it just seems kind of dry or like it's hard. Why is it like that? Um, I don't have a full answer to this question, but I think it's helpful to look at how this plays out on both the individual and the corporate level because there are times in our lives as believers where we're on fire for God, right? We feel a passion for God, a hunger for his word, a joy and vibrancy in our prayer life. God feels close, and we see him at work in our lives. But we also go through seasons where it doesn't feel like that. We, we go through seasons where, I mean, yeah, we, we might still believe in God, but we just don't feel the same passion and zeal that we once possessed. Our prayer life dwindles and can feel more like a duty than a privilege. Scripture can seem dull or boring. God can seem far away. And it's difficult for us to identify areas in which he's at work in our lives. As believers, we all have highs and lows, right? We all go through different seasons. Sometimes we're in lush pastures and other times it feels like a desert. And I think it's normal and, and even healthy for us to have a uh, a bit of both over the course of our lives. I don't think it's normal or healthy for us to always be or mostly be in those desert experiences or, or for our lows to be so low that we wander away from God. Nor is it healthy for our spiritual lives to be a perpetual roller coaster with extremes ups, extreme ups and downs that affect our ability to function. Instead, I think there are ebbs and flows in our relationship with Yeshua that can work together. 
without the ebbs, we'd fail to appreciate the flows. Without the low points, we wouldn't recognize the high points. Uh, the ebbs are meant to draw our hearts after him with greater longing. So we see this in our lives as individuals, right? And when that sort of thing happens on the corporate level, these, these corporate high points, these corporate flows are what we call revival. For some reason, God chooses to have it that way, where every now and then we get a taste of the kingdom. We get a taste of that good fruit from the coming messianic era. But it's not a perpetual high like that all the time. There's a couple possible pitfalls to avoid in seeking revival. Um, we must not seek revival as an excuse to avoid the daily work of living holy lives. We, we talked a bit about this uh, a couple sessions ago. I remember the commandment in the Torah that's repeated very emphatically to not let the fire on the altar go out, right? Uh, on when Moses and Aaron set up the tabernacle, and it was consecrated. It talks about the fire coming down from heaven and consuming the offering. There is this, you know, I mean, that would have been an incredible thing to see, right? But it wasn't like that every day, right? Uh, there were a lot of days. I mean, every day they had to keep that fire burning, but they didn't see this grand fireworks or fire falling from heaven every day, right? That was, that was kind of a, a one-time thing. Although it did happen again with Elijah, and maybe other times. But, you know, sometimes maybe as a priest, you might feel like, man, this keeping this fire going is kind of boring. I wish we could have some more excitement here. <laughs> and, and you forget how miraculous this fire is that you're maintaining here. I mean, maybe, maybe it's like that with our spiritual lives, right? It's not always this exciting ride that, you know, is incredible, blow your minds, I can't believe what's happening kind of thing going on. Sometimes that happens, right? Um, but then there comes the daily duty of maintaining this fire, this holy fire that God has given us. Uh, related to that is the concept of manna, right? The, this food that the Israelites had in the wilderness this miraculous food from heaven, and they got bored of it. It became something mundane to them so that they craved other food. And we have to be careful not to go craving after other food, right? We have the spiritual nourishment that we need um, with or without revival experiences we have what we need. God has given us what we need through his spirit and through his word, which is always there and available for us. Uh, so all this to say, we can't use revival as an excuse to say, well, I'm fed up with my daily spiritual walk. I just want exciting stuff. I, I don't want any of this boring stuff. And fail to see the, the necessity of daily living in holiness. You know, like Paul says, it's like putting on a suit of armor. 
every day. <laughs> we can't just say, oh, today I don't feel like putting on my armor. I'm waiting for revival. <laughs> so that can't become an excuse. We also can't use a lack of revival as an excuse for avoiding the Great Commission. We are called to go out and make disciples, whether or not it's easy, right? And, and quite frankly, the results are not up to us. The results are up to God. Um, we sow seeds, and that can be through everyday conversations that you have with anyone, right? We're not responsible for those seeds sprouting and growing, and you never know what God can do with uh, something that you plant in someone's life. So just just because it's difficult or just because we feel like, you know, we don't see big dramatic results necessarily, that doesn't mean that we're excused from following Yeshua's commandment in the Great Commission to make disciples. Another pitfall to avoid is the idea that you can conjure up revival through hype. Uh, obviously, there's a big difference between revival and man-made emotionalism. And revivals, true revivals, may have uh, strong emotions uh, produced in people, but there's a difference between the two. It's not something that we can make happen, right? And last, we cannot seek revival merely for the experience without a commitment to be at God's disposal. Like we were talking about last time, God sends his spirit for a purpose. He, God doesn't waste his breath. When he sends forth his spirit, it's to empower and commission his people to do what he wants them to do. And so if we're not willing to be available and for, for God to use us however he wants, then, and, and all we're looking for is this experience. We're not really wanting what revival is all about. So those are some possible pitfalls. And sometimes, like we talked about last time, revival can mean different things to different people. And so there are a lot of a lot of people out there who say they want revival or are praying for revival, uh, but we have to avoid any of these reasons in our in our praying. Right? This is not what revival is about. So, how do we seek revival? I'm going to suggest six steps. This is by no means a comprehensive step-by-step -step list of how to bring about revival or anything like that. But these are just things that I think are important. And there are probably other things we could add to this list if we wanted to spend more time doing that. But um, these, I think, are essential. So the first one is to overcome our apathy. The first step toward being receptive to revival is to actually care about it. Isaiah 44, verse 3. I want to just turn there. Isaiah 44, verse 3, For I will pour water on the thirsty ground and streams on the, dry, on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on, upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So it's using this imagery of pouring out water on dry, parched ground 
as, as a metaphor for God pouring out his spirit on his people. But what's interesting about that, the beginning of that verse is the Hebrew doesn't have the word land in it. It just says, I will pour water on the thirsty. And so I think there's something here in that God wants to pour his spirit out on those who are thirsty for it. We need to have a hunger for more of him. We need to have that desire, that longing for his work in our lives. You know, often we lack passion for God. We lack this desire for God. And I mean, that should bother us, right? But sometimes we're in a state of such deadness that we don't even have the energy to care about it. And we need to ask God to help us care about it. Even if we lack the desire to care about it, we need to at least be willing to ask God to give us the desire to care about it. And God is so gracious to us. Even in our utter inability, he's there to help us. Sometimes we don't even know what to pray. And so we have to pray and ask God to help us to pray. <laughs> so that's the first step, is overcoming our apathy. The second step, uh, confess our sins and insufficiencies to God. As we saw yesterday, repentance is an essential component of true revival. Before we can even pray for revival, we must humble ourselves before God and confess our sins to him. Among other sins, we can include the sin of slothfulness, the sin of apathy, the sin of lack of prayer, and the sin of thinking that we're self-sufficient. We have to acknowledge our utter dependence on him, that without him, we're nothing. Step three, cultivate a hunger for more of God's presence in our lives. How do we do that? Well, I think the basic, most basic way to do that is ask God to help us. Ask God to give us that hunger. A hunger for his word, a hunger for more of him in us. Number four, cultivate a burden for lost people. Notice how these two follow the two great commandments. The commandment to love God with all our heart, soul, and might, and the commandment to love our neighbor as ourself. And again, we need to ask for God's help in this. We need God to fill our hearts with his love so that we can love him in return. And the more we love him, the more we will yearn for his presence in our lives. Similarly, the more we love others, the more we will be burdened by the sin and suffering in their lives. These yearnings and longings will demand an outlet through prayer. Number five, surrender every aspect of our hearts and lives to him. Once again, if, if our desire is not to be alt, uh, you know, uh, totally at God's disposal, then I don't think we really have any business asking for revival. That's the point of revival, is that um, he might use us as his vessels the way uh, only he can. And then finally, beseech God to revive his people. I think 
ultimately, like I said, that God is the one who brings revival. And all we can do is ask. And he's looking for those who are hungry. Okay, one last note on this concept of seeking revival. Uh, is the question, uh, has anyone heard of this phrase, a covenant of revival? I'm going to read these two verses. These are, uh, these are two of the favorite passages that people like to quote in connection with re revival. Uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 13. It says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So the idea is if we're truly seeking God with all our heart, he will be found by us. And the other one is Second Chronicles 7, uh, 14. This is probably the most common verse associated with revival. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So, I have heard it expressed by some people that these two verses represent God's promise or God's covenant uh, to bring revival. That if we seek God with all our heart, if we humble ourselves, confess our sins, and seek his face, and turn from our wicked ways, then God has to send revival, or God will send revival. And so some people refer to these as God's covenant or promise of revival. And some people go to the extreme of saying these verses mean that when God's people pray and act the right way and seek him the right way, then God is basically compelled to send revival. God can't refuse. Um, so two thoughts on that. Uh, first of all, if you read both of these verses in context, these passages are talking about Israel, about the restoration of Israel. I don't think we can apply these without qualification to the United States or to Canada or any other country, right? So when it talks about healing... Um, healing our land, right? So the Second Chronicles passage, this is actually God's response to, to Solomon's prayer of dedication at the temple. If you skip back a few verses to Second Chronicles 7, 11, thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. And it goes on. So in context, it's talking about Israel, when Israel sins and when Israel is not following Torah, and the curses mentioned in the Torah come about, right? I mean, th this is uh, basically quoting from Deuteronomy, from a couple different passages in Deuteronomy. When these curses come about, the consequences of disobeying Torah, if 
Israel repents, turns from their wickedness, comes back to Torah, and confesses their sins to God, that God will heal the land of Israel. Right? So we can't, it, it, it would be taking it out of context to say, oh, we can apply this to America. If we do these things, then God will heal America. That's not quite what it's saying here. Um, similarly, in Jeremiah 29, this is the in, in the context, this is the promise that God makes to the exiles in Babylonia. In Jeremiah 29.10, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place, back to the land of Israel. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile." So in context, this is talking about the end of exile, the restoration of Israel. Um, nonetheless, I do believe that these verses point to an important truth, and that is the connection between revival and Israel. And I want to look at that more in just a moment. First... I want to ask a question. We see in the Tanakh promises, predictions of an end-time outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We looked at this back in, uh, what session was that? Session four, I think. God promises to pour out his spirit on his people. He promises, to, you know, this, this end-time eschatological outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's one of the things that will be a hallmark of the end times, of the messianic age, is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so there's all these promises, and one of them is Joel chapter 2. And in Joel 2, it talks about pouring out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. So... What's interesting is when we read the account in Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes down upon the apostles, Peter quotes that, pa that passage from Joel chapter 2, right? And so the question is, does this mean that Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of these promises? We did ask this question already once in this back in session 7. And essentially... Uh, what I proposed and I, I believe is true is that Acts 2 represents just a foretaste or a first fruits of the final outpouring. Um, because when you look at the content of what's supposed to happen in Joel chapter 2, most of it did not take place yet. I mean, even the, the basic promise of pouring out his spirit on all flesh has not yet taken place, right? So contrary to some Christian scholars, I, I don't believe that Peter intended us to understand what took place in Acts 2 as the full fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. I think Peter rightly assumed that this is like, this is the first fruits, this is the foretaste, and this is 
going to spread. And this is going to encompass all of God's people, uh, all of Israel, and even by extension. And I don't think Peter even understood the full implication of these words, all flesh, all mankind. So as proof of the immediacy of the kingdom, uh, we have access to the good things of the kingdom now in advance of its literal coming here on earth. We can enter the future kingdom now, and the spirit is a proof of that. I believe we find this uh, support for this view in the scriptures because the apostles relate uh, the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer to the powers of the age to come. That's Hebrews 6, 4 to 5. And uh, Paul talks about the spirit dwelling in us is a down payment, uses the Greek word aravon, a down payment of what is to come. 2 Corinthians 1, 22, 5, 5, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. Paul says that we possess the first fruits of the Spirit in Romans 8.23. So, Acts 2 and any outpouring of the Spirit that we've had since then is just a foretaste of the kingdom. It's a pledge of what is yet to come. So all this to say, I believe there's an even bigger outpouring of the Spirit that has not yet happened. Right? Acts 2 was not... Sometimes in Christian theology, it's, it's just viewed as though Acts 2 was when God gave the Holy Spirit. Now we have it. That's a done deal. He's not going to give it again. I mean, that would be redundant, right? I don't think that's the way the scriptures portray it, though. This uh, Acts 2 was... Uh, uh, I don't want to diminish the significance, the monumental significance of what took place in Acts 2. But it's not the end of the story. It's not a one-time shot and then it's all over. And the way the scriptures speak, there's something even bigger that is coming. And I want to look at that again a little bit. Um, so these are passages in the Tanakh, and mostly in Isaiah and Ezekiel and a few of the other prophets, that promise a future outpouring of God's spirit. We did already look through all of these, so I'm not going to take the time to look up every verse. But I do want to remind us of a, of a couple of these verses, uh, one of which I, I don't have on the slide there. But if you remember in Numbers 11, Moses utters this veiled prophecy. Numbers 11 is that story where the... the uh, God tells Moses to appoint 70 elders to help him in the burden of bearing uh, the weight of all these people, right? The burden of the people. And uh, so they're all gathered at the tent of meeting, and God says, I'm going to take some of the spirit that's on you and put it on these 70 elders, right? And what happens? There were two guys, Eldad and Medad, who didn't show up for the meeting. It doesn't say why. Uh, maybe they were sick, or maybe they didn't feel like they really deserved that position, or whatever it may be. Um, but it says that the Lord came down, this is Numbers eleven twenty-five. the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. Uh, and these two guys that didn't come to the meeting, that stayed in the camp, they were prophesying in the camp too. Right? And Joshua gets kind of jealous for Moses' sake. Joshua says, 
My Lord, Moses, stop them. And Moses says to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And this, is, this is a veiled prophecy. Moses is looking forward to the day which, and the prophets take this up, this, this is going to happen, that all the Lord's people will have his spirit on them. Okay. So there's this anticipation of a future outpouring of the Spirit, and, and even this language of pouring out, right, is, is a metaphor. It's, you know, you use the analogy of taking a jug of water and pouring it into a cup, and you fill up this cup with water, right? That's what God does with his Spirit. He pours out his Spirit and fills up his people as, as, uh, as vessels. So Isaiah 44, 1 to 5, uh, we already looked briefly at Isaiah 44, verse 3, which talks about, I will pour out my spirit on, I will pour out water on the thirsty, right? But we didn't read it in its context. Who is the recipient of this outpouring in context? Let's look at it. Isaiah 44, verse 1. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you in the womb, and will help you. Um, I will pour my spirit on your offspring, my blessing on your descendants, and it goes on. So this is, co this is coming on Israel, right? Verse 5 is cool. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. It's not entirely clear, but... I think this may be hinting at Gentile inclusion. Those who are not literal descendants of Israel, literal descendants of Jacob, who attach themselves to Israel, being numbered among God's people and getting to participate in this eschatological blessing. Okay, uh, let's look at Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, 24 to 40 or to to 30 God says I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put it within you I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules you will dwell in the land, you shall be my people, I shall be your God, deliver you from your uncleanness, and cause the land to increase its produce, to have abundant produce. So, you know, again, this is God's spirit being poured out on his people in the context of the final restoration of Israel. Israel being brought back to the land and becoming the people that God intended her to be. Joel chapter 2, uh, this is the passage that, uh, that Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2. Uh, I want to look at Zechariah 12, verse 10. And this one is especially significant, I, I believe. 
Zechariah 12.10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemaites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves." On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So this is a really interesting passage. Um, I mean, the, it's hard for this not to be any more explicit than it is. This outpouring takes place at that moment when Israel recognizes Yeshua. So, if we put these passages together, what are, what are the characteristics of this outpouring that's being described in all these different passages, including the ones we didn't have time to read? This outpouring is focused on the people of Israel, right? Joel, in Joel chapter 2, it suggests that the outpouring will extend even to Gentiles when it says, pour out my spirit on all flesh. Uh, but that's the only passage that makes such a uh, large claim. Most of them is talking about Israel. As we saw, the one in Isaiah could possibly include those who have attached themselves to Israel, but it's not It's not 100% clear, right? Uh, what is clear is that all these passages for sure include Israel. It will coincide with the coming of the Redeemer, the establishment of his kingdom, the restoration of Israel, uh, or maybe to clarify that a bit, it, it will immediately precede these, at least according to Zechariah. This happens just before uh, Yeshua returns. It will accompany great signs and wonders and acts of judgment. It will be manifested in weeping and supplication on the part of Israel. It will be manifested in prophecy through dreams and visions. It will result in cleansing from sin and idolatry. It will result in the revival of Israel in returning to God with all their heart, a subduing of the sinful nature and a transformation of the people to be inclined to follow God. And there's a universal aspect to this outpouring. It will result in a universal knowledge of God and a transformation and restoration of creation. It will accompany a complete return to the land with none of Israel remaining among the nations. It will result in God's blessing upon Israel, both the people and the land. The land will become abundantly fruitful. It will be permanent. The spirit will never again be taken away from Israel. This is a description of the kingdom. This is the time when Messiah will return to earth to, to reign for a thousand years. This is our great hope. And as we saw, uh, what it seems at least most clear in Zechariah, 
the Spirit will be poured out on Israel just in advance of Messiah's return. An outpouring on all Israel will usher in the kingdom. So all this to say, I think the Bible clearly anticipates an end-time outpouring, an end-time revival, if you want to call it that, and that Acts 2 was just a foretaste of that. There's something bigger that is yet to come. And, you know, a lot of Christians throughout history have uh, proposed that, even though the mainstream Christian view today seems to be that, well, the Holy Spirit was given at Acts 2, that's it. Right, but but there have been there's been a sense among a lot of believers that there will be an even greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit to usher in the last days. Right, and throughout Christian history, various groups have claimed to be that outpour, that final outpouring. So the Montanists, uh, I don't know if anyone remembers us talking about the Montanists back in session two or something like that. They claimed to, it was third century, I think. Third or uh, somewhere around there, um, long time ago, they claimed to be that final end time outpouring, of which Acts chapter two was only a foretaste, <laughs> and and that with their movement they were ushering in the last days, and the early church rejected them um, rightfully. But it's interesting. The reason why they were rejected by the early church was because. Uh, the mainstream church believed the last days already began with Acts chapter 2. And so you guys can't be ushering in the last days. That's already happened. You guys can't be the final outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That happened back in Acts 2. Okay, but so there's always been detractors to the mainstream position. Another example is uh, the, Charis the Pentecostal movement with Azusa Street. Uh, a lot of people believed that this was the final end time outpouring of which Acts 2 was only a foretaste. Uh, the charismatic movement in the 60s, the third wave, other groups like the latter rain movement, that language, they're taking it from uh, Joel's prophecy about the latter rain and believe that Acts 2 was the former rain and then there's a latter rain coming, which will be uh, the larger outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and these groups often believe that their, they, their group was ushering in these last days. The reason why none of those groups were it, though, biblically, is that none of them were the Jewish people. <laughs> the prophecies are that this will happen on Israel, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's on the Jewish people that this end-time outpouring will happen. Now, it, it will include more than just the Jewish people. Uh, we see hints of that and more or less explicit references to that. But it's for sure going to include the Jewish people. Any Gentile group claiming to be the fulfillment of these prophecies is not. Okay, one final verse I want to look at. And with that, I think we'll conclude here. And that is uh, back in Genesis... Genesis 45, in the story of Joseph, Joseph is taken away as a slave to Egypt, and his father Jacob believes that he's died. And he basically, uh, Jacob says that I will go down mourning to my son, to Sheol. 
And so a part of Jacob died in that moment as well. He was basically ready to die at that moment. And there's actually a rabbinic tradition that the Holy Spirit left Jacob during that time. And what happens when Jacob reveals himself to his brothers and his brothers are so excited and they come back to their father. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and the brothers come back to Jacob and they're, they're so excited. They're saying, Joseph's still alive. And it says in Genesis 45, 26, that Jacob's heart was numb because he did not believe them. He still even hearing this news, this exciting news, was unable to recognize Joseph as alive. But then in verse 27, it says, When they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And suddenly, it doesn't call him Jacob anymore, it calls him Israel. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and, and see him before I die. I think this is a picture of the end times. One day Israel will recognize Yeshua, who is Lord over a Gentile territory. And as far as Jacob was concerned, was an utter foreigner. But one day... God will reveal himself, Yeshua will reveal himself to his brothers, and the spirit of Jacob will be revived. We pray that day will be soon. Thanks for listening to this podcast. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.